Hey everybody. Happy New Year and stuff. Um, so, some of you know that um, every month and a half or so, we've been going through and having had these sort of shorter talks on some of the stuff we've talked about related to our vision. Um, some of you guys have seen this. It's in the pew rack in front of you, and it's basically what our mission as a church is, um, what our ministry model is, like how we do that together. And then down at the bottom, there's there's basically, the pl- it says the plants, what it's going to take from each one of us to accomplish this. And the five things it says personally are to commit myself to the mission personally, convictionally. Two, to pray for two people. We did that last time we did this, right? Two people we want to know Jesus and to pray to ask God to give us an opportunity to talk with them. Third is to contribute through service, serving somewhere, serving other people through the local church. Fourth is figuring out what sacrificial generosity is for us and to live in it. Fifth is to make people our business. And then the last one is to escape diversion and embrace discipline. And that, and New Year's resolution time, what a, what a better time than to talk about that, right? So um, let's talk about our vision and what it's going to take for us to accomplish it together, one by one, specifically in relationship to this one. Escaping diversion and embracing discipline. There's a verse in 1 Corinthians 15 that says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor, labor, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. One of the things that you'll find all through the New Testament is discipline language. It's everywhere in the New Testament, in the whole Bible. That it doesn't just take good feelings, nice intentions, but along with good intentions and even good convictions, there has to be a coordinate discipline. Not that saves us or makes us right with God, but that builds character and helps us be the kind of people we want to be. One of um, the things we always make the interns listen to here at High Point is the biographical talks that John Piper does every year at the pastor's conference. If, if you haven't ever listened to those, um, w- w- Lisa will remind me to put a link up today to the biographical talks at Des- the Desiring God website. But one of the ones— and I would listen to these. I've almost had to pull off the road crying while I was driving listening to some of these. They're, they're, they're wonderful. Um, but one of my favorite ones that he did is about William Wilberforce. Um, if you don't know who he is, um, Wilberforce is, it was an evangelical Christian who lived in the 17 um, and 1800s, and he was the spearhead in the British Parliament for abolishing the slave trade and then slavery in England. Um, and uh, he said in 1787, after his conversion, He said, God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. That sounds pretty noble, but what you need to know about Wilberforce is that for for 20 years, he meant nothing but defeat and failure. Um, He, no more, no less than 11 times that he put some kind of vote up for something to suppress the slave trade, and it got shot down. He, he made that commitment in 1787, and the slave trade, not even just slavery, but just the trade, didn't end in the British Empire until 1807, and slavery wasn't abolished until 1833. That is, it took him 20 years to win his first victory, and 46 years to reach his goal. Um, one former member of the British Parliament said this about him. In the history of the British politics, there has been no comparable display of moral courage over such a prolonged period by a single campaigner. Perhaps Winston Churchill's lonely opposition to the appeasement of Hitler's Germany and the 1930s comes close. 
but his wilderness years were shorter than those endured by Wilberforce and were thwarted by fewer defeats. But here's what you need to know about Wilberforce. He was not always like that. His opponents used to say about him, Wilberforce is the kind of man that the more times you punch him in the face, the stronger and happier he gets. That's what his political opponents said about him. He faced—you talk about corporate interests. People talk about corporate interests in government, okay? The slave trade and the international global, global imperial empire of the British world was bigger than the entire government of Britain. The corporate interests didn't just affect government. They were government. They were bigger than everything in the public society of the nation at the time. There were more people, many times the number of people, under the rule of the slave trade companies than there were citizens in England. And yet, this is the kind of fight Wilberforce never gave up being a part of. But that was the Wilberforce after 1787. The Wilberforce, speaking of his life before 1787, said, I did nothing at all. His daddy died when he was younger, and he was from a wealthy family. He went to school, and then he went to college, and he referred to those, dear, those years as his shapeless idleness. He said, later on, the most valuable years of life wasted, and opportunities lost which can never be recovered. But he did make one mistake. He, he became elected at Parliament because he felt like it. Just kind of—he was just this kind of guy that was like really funny and got in lots of arguments, and he thought, wouldn't it be great to have arguments in the House of Commons? And so he spent what would be the equivalent to a couple million dollars today, and on a lark, just got elected to the House of Commons and served there the rest of his life. And, um, yet, what, and here's what would happen. They would be in session for a few months, and do you know what they all did when they weren't in session? They all went to the French Riviera for the summer and drank wine and played cards and pl watched polo games and so forth, which is perfect for Wilberforce. This just sounded like a wonderful lifestyle. He did that for several years. And then one year, in 1786, he invited an old school buddy named Jacob Milner with him. And he didn't know that to his horror, Milner was one of these evangelicals. He didn't just go to church, but he believed in Jesus. He believed in the Bible. He believed in personal conversion, that God could radically change you from the inside out. And he did it through the power of the Spirit when we put our faith in Christ. And so he's hanging out with this guy. And so he invites him to spend several months with him in the French Riviera. When Miller's like, okay. And they go. And so through this interaction, over the course of about a year, Wilberforce gets really converted. And he begins to despise his wealth, mainly how he uses it. And he began to realize that he's wasting his life in the summers in the French Riviera. And in 1787, there's this radical shift in what happened. They still went on holiday because he took his mother and wife with him. But his—what he did during his days totally changed. This is how Piper summarizes it in his talk. He studied about nine or ten hours a day, typically breakfasting alone, taking walks alone, dining with the host family and other guests, but not joining them in the evening until he came down about three-quarters of an hour before bedtime for whatever supper I wanted. That's Wilberforce writing about himself. He realized he'd wasted so much of his life, and he realized he had such a task ahead of him to suppress the slave trade 
that it was going to take nothing less than an absolute commitment on these holidays to become the sort of man, intellectually and morally and personally, who could fight for 50 years if necessary to accomplish what he believed God had called him to. Now, in one sense, oh, that's the wrong button. Let's try that. Now, in some ways, you could say, well, that's just, he just turned into a Puritan. Isn't that nice? Um, sort of. But in his, in his book, um, when he wrote about Christian devotion, he didn't say, you know, you need to work really hard. What he said was, when you, when you exert discipline, when you move away from diversion and you move toward discipline, he said, here's what happens. The discipline brings you into something that is worth far more and, in, and able to be enjoyed far more than whatever you did in your trifling pursuits. And he said, so the sacrifices that I made to do what I thought needed to be done, to become the sort of man I knew God wanted me to be, he said, those sacrifices were trifling sacrifices. I lived a trifling life. And then I made this—I sacrificed those trifling things for something much, much greater. And he—and Wilberforce didn't see his devotional times of reading or his prayer or— engaging with certain friends in different certain kinds of conversations or using his money in certain ways or, or going to certain kinds of meetings or doing the sorts of things he thought would get him from here to there. He didn't see those as laws and requirements that God had put on him. And if he did them, then maybe he'd get to heaven. Jesus had already set him free from sin, death, and hell. It wasn't about that. It was about what was it going to take to cooperate with the work of God in his life and the calling of God on his life to become the sort of person that could deliver through character on the convictions that he had that he knew were right. And we, we have to stop kidding ourselves that we're going to get from point A to point B without very deliberately escaping diversion and embracing discipline. It's almost a dirty word in the evangelical church partly because of the therapeutic culture that doesn't want to do anything and just wants to be entertained, partly because we're afraid people are going to confuse work and grace. Galatians says this in verses 6, in chapter 6, verses 7 and 9, and this is quoted by John Wesley um, in a letter that he wrote Wilberforce a year before he died. It says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows or plants— to please his sinful nature, from that nature will he, he will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from that Spirit will reap eternal life. Let's not, let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. But we live in a culture in which 80 million people have watched this. Keep your eye Yeah. A sneezing baby panda. Right? That's the culture we live in. If you look at the statistics on TV watching in the United States, right? Thankfully, we're in a dead heat tie with the UK at 28 hours a week. One of the realizations that ends up dawning—oh, there's a slide missing there. One of the realizations that dawned on me as a parent a little while back is if, if I put my kids to bed sometime between 7 and 8, and I go to bed sometime between 10 and 11, that, that's at least two hours a night, most nights of my life. And what most people naturally do is they've had a hard day, right? That's internet, TV, 
decompression time, we call it. Isn't that a wonderful way to talk about it? It's my decompression time. Right? That's what I call it. It's, it's the better part of 800 hours a year. It is. It's, the, it's, it's 754 hours a year, and that's if it's two hours. But most of us don't go to bed before 11 or something. And I, I usually find a way to get mad at my kids and send them to bed at about five. <laughs> that's not true. But it's really more like three hours, right? Diversion, the kinds of things we need to think about, are it's what I want to do, what I don't want to do, what I should do. And it's a lot of stuff. And it's a lot of stuff that's okay to do, but that if we sow to please the sinful nature, we do it in an inordinate amount. So what I want to do when I don't want to do what I should do is I want to indulge my visceral desires, like food and other things. Um, I want to buy stuff. Now, I'm not much of a shopper. My wife has to buy clothes for me so that I have clothes that have been purchased since college. But I— but when I get depressed, you know what I do? I surf gun broker for bolt action rifles. And I already have three. Why am I doing that? It's diversion. It's leisure. It's, I don't want to concentrate on whatever I'm supposed to be concentrating on. Right? Or, or hanging out. Some generations do that more than others. Or just playing games, just silly games. I mean, think about, think about how much money is made in America just on buying little games. And now we have phones, and we, for a dollar we can play silly games all the time, right? And teach our kids to do it. And then just watching stuff, right? And—oh, there it is, sorry. But for me, as I think about this as a pastor, one of the things that comes to mind again and again is this passage from 1 Timothy, where Paul says, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. That is, stupid conversations that take forever right? And that are about things that don't help. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise both in the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And for this we labor and strive, that we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, and especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given to you through a prophetic message. And when the body of elders laid their hands on you, be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Do you see the relationship of discipline? Embrace discipline, avoid diversion, become the sort of person who can fulfill this calling, and the effect it's going to have on you and on everybody else is going to be this— there's a reward in this life and in eternal life, and you might even save yourself and your hearers. Now think about that. Do you think that is only a message for a pastor? Or do you think like in 1 Timothy chapter 3, when it talks about what an elder is, and an elder in Timothy is a pastor, it's 
somebody who's a really good example. That's all you're looking for, right? Read 1 Timothy chapter 3. What a pastor is supposed to be is a good example of a Christian, right? That's actually for everyone. And do you see, do you see the way the logic runs? You've got to avoid these diversions that everybody else is falling into. All these, all these ridiculous conversations, all these vacuous uses of time, you, you gotta, you, you can't just do more discipline and do all that. You've got to edit that to have this. You have to say no to this to say yes to that, because you don't get more time. You don't go, well, I want to be a disciplined person, so can I have 47 more hours a week? You're, the pill that lets you sleep four hours a night and feel totally psychologically and physically refreshed does not exist yet. And may never. And so there has to be editing— and then embracing based on the conviction of the hope of the result. Because training in godliness has a promise of blessing in this life and in the life to come. And you see the significance of its effect on everybody around you? What does he say? If you do this, what will happen? You'll save both yourself and who? And everybody in your circle. Everybody who can hear you. Oops, wrong button again. It's a new program, sorry. So for me, so I'll say this publicly, and you can pick on me, and this is the one of the things of the five things that I do the worst at, okay? Not four children have a baby. This is not a particularly good discipline time of life for me. I feel really entitled to my decompression time, okay? So here, here are some of the things that I'm committing to. And then, they, you don't have to commit to these. These are idiosyncratic to myself, but you need some. That's why there's a note in your, in your bulletin for you to write stuff down for you on. So one, if I want to buy something, it goes on a list I have on the internet, and it has to sit there for a month before I can buy it, if it costs more than about five dollars. And if I still want it in a month, and I have the money for that, then I can buy it if I want to. And that makes surfing around for stuff I just feel like buying much more useless. I have a TV plan. I can watch as much TV as I want Sunday nights and Thursday night, because Thursday night's date night, and I watch whatever my kids watch a movie night on Friday night when we eat pizza. Other than that, I can't watch any more than one episode, and only if I'm doing my physical therapy while I'm doing it. Third, I need to have a hard bedtime, because my first pastor said this, TV is the thief that steals from the next day, or the internet. Surfing, TV, it's the thief that steals from the next day. Don't let it steal the next day. And the only way to get around that is to be legalistic about a hard bedtime, usually. And when I'm surfing, especially during the day, and there's some cool website I want to read, but it's not particularly relevant for studying I'm doing or my sermon, but I still want to read it because it looks interesting, I use the Pocket app. I click Save to Pocket. It puts it in an app, and I can read that on my own time. I don't lose the website. If I really still want to read it, I can read it. And it's in that app waiting for me, but I'm not reading it right now because nobody does their best work following around their attention like a cocker spaniel, especially when they have ADD and narcolepsy. And then in addition to that attack on diversion, I'm going to fill that void with discipline, right? When I'm not watching TV during that point of my life, I need to commit to reading, because for me, that's my calling, right? I need to specifically read, especially those days, at least an hour extra a night beyond work, right? I need to do all my home tasks before I do my diversions. So if my wife needs something done in the house, I don't decompress before that's done, right? 
I need to get out of bed the days I help get the kids to school at 6.45, so I'm down in time to help and help with family devotions. And I have a specific time set aside for morning prayers, the mornings I don't play basketball before I come to church, specifically blocked off so nobody talks to me. Th that's me. I have—you see, I, I have to do all that stuff, or I'm not going to get there from here. I have to have these rules and disciplines and structures built into my life. I have to intentionally attack diversion and intentionally embrace discipline because I want to do something with my life. I don't want to do nothing at all, like Wilberforce said about his early years. And the great news is, to look at Wilberforce. He wasted his first 30 years or so. But look at how much God used him for. It doesn't matter how long you've been diverting all kinds of energy in your life. Reject diversion, embrace discipline right now. It'll make an enormous difference. And you'll find the sacrifices that you made were trifling sacrifices. Follow the, the teaching of the apostle when he says, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. I want to encourage you this week, take that thing that was in your bulletin, write on it, Make specific decisions. Share them with other people. Bring them to your small group and say out loud in front of other people, here are the diversions I'm going to attack. Here are the disciplines I'm going to embrace. Please ask me if I'm doing this. Every one of you has the right to ask me about anything I've said this morning. At any time. Because I want your help. I don't want to plant to my sinful nature. And I hope you don't either.